Hello, Basement Programmers, and welcome. This is the Basement Programmer Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Moore. The opinions expressed in the Basement Programmer Podcast are those of myself and any guests that I may have, and are not necessarily those of our employers or organizations we may be associated with. Feedback in the Basement Programmer Podcast, including suggestions on things you'd like to hear about, can be emailed to me at tom at basementprogrammer.com. And I'm always on the lookout for people who would like to come on the podcast and talk about anything technology-related. So drop me a line. And now for this episode. Everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Let's see, how to introduce my guest for today. He's been a longtime ally of .NET on AWS and, and that crowd. He's, this is his second appearance on the podcast. He's also the only person I know to run a race powered only by Broccoli. It's James Easton. Welcome, James. Possibly the um, the most interesting of the intros I think I've ever had. Tom powered by broccoli. Wow, that would be. A... <laughs> I might have to try that at some point. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm doing well. How have you how have you been doing? Yeah, it's been it's been a long time actually. It feels like it's been a while since we last caught up. But yeah, things are um, things are still going along. You know, the, the serverless.net world is still there. It's still powering forward. So yeah, it's, it's exciting to be back. That's actually been nine months since we recorded the oh, last really? podcast episode. Yes. Wow. So we've got a lot to talk about. Definitely. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, once you've been on the podcast five times, I think you get an official Basement Programmer t-shirt. Oh, okay. So can you can you line me up for the next like four episodes? Or I just chunk this one down into five smaller episodes. Does that count? <laughs> then I get a, did I get a t-shirt? <laughs> Don't get too excited. I have absolutely no artistic talent whatsoever. <laughs> um, but if you watch my YouTube videos, sometimes you can see the Basement Programmer shirt. <laughs> anyway so yeah it's been nine months since we caught up what do you what have you been up to um mostly still trying to wax lyrical about the benefits of of dotnet and and lambda mostly um <laughs> and actually i turned a little bit to the dark side and started doing a lot of java content because actually there's a lot of similarities between between dotnet and java particularly when you're talking serverless um, and even with the programming models themselves, right? They're very similar languages. So yeah, just a lot of um, YouTube content. I've created a couple of courses. So I've got a course, nice. shameless plug, on solutions architecture and on microservices, building microservices. And um, that's on the Dome Train platform that Nick chaps us, who any of the .NET listeners will know very well, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. It's Nick's new learning platform. So so yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty exciting last nine months actually. London Summit, reInvent again, all the joys of Las yeah. Vegas. I think I've just about recovered from from reInvent and Las Vegas. So <laughs> yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty wild year actually when I look back retrospectively. Um did you manage to avoid COVID? And I did. I actually came back completely well. I was really jet lagged. Normally I have like a couple of days of jet lag. It was like a week this time where I was just like up at three AM, four AM, because coming back from the US to Europe is much worse than going out. Um, but yeah, I avoided COVID. I avoided illness of almost any kind that I, I still do not know how, because many people I know came back from Vegas with COVID. So yeah, some, some, some miraculous reason I've managed to get away with that somehow. Nice. Oh, I did too as well, uh, as well, but I wasn't actually in the heart of, um, of reInvent. So that probably attributes some of my, uh, some of my success in avoiding it. Hey, so serverless, we both love it. In fact, we, in fact, uh, you've done a lot of work around the documentation and enabling people in the area of serverless, especially when it comes to .NET and you know, recently Java. I'll forgive you for that one. Um, and in fact, I, I actually was a Java programmer in a former lifetime. So, um, obviously, things don't stay the same for nine months. So, what's new and exciting? Ah, new and exciting. Nine months, as you know, as you know, nine months <laughs> in AWS land is about ten years in how the pace of the rest of the world seems to walk. So there's been a lot of stuff that's changed in the last mm-hmm. nine months, and I've tried to, in preparation for this this chat, to kind of put together what I think are some of the more interesting announcements mm-hmm. that have come both out of reInvent and kind of around the reInvent area whether that's just before just after because there's been bits of both sides Um, and i thought we could probably work through it like a service by service basis so obviously lambda is a big component of serverless i talk about lambda a lot with dotnet and java but that's not all there is to serverless there is a whole bunch of other things um so i thought we could go through service by service talk about some of the new announcements um and yeah go from there and i think the coolest place to start 
is actually with my favorite service, which is Step Functions. I just, I just love it. It's just amazing. It's just such a good service. It gives you so much. It takes away so much. You know, fundamentally, when I think about servers, I think about reducing operational overhead. And when you think about all mm-hmm. the things that, that Step Functions can do, it's, it's, you know, it's a workflow engine. It can manage retries. It can manage exponential backoff, parallel executions, massive scale with distributed map. It's, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant service. So there's, there's a whole bunch of things that came out um, a, a reinvent for Step Functions. One of my favorite being the restart from failed state function. Um, and what that means is, well, pr- prior to this announcement, if you had a step function, a workflow that had 10 steps, and if you're not familiar with step functions, anyone listening, it's picture it as just a workflow engine. You have a collection of steps and, and state passes from step to step to step to step, hence the name step functions. Um, and if you had a failure at any point in your function, you could build into the fun- the, the step the workflow to retry a number of times. But if it retried so many times that it still couldn't work, it, the whole execution would just fail. And if you wanted to rerun that same workflow again, you would have to start it from the start of the workflow again. So you'd pass in the exact same input and mm-hmm. the whole workflow would have to run again, which in some cases might be fine. In some cases, you imagine like a order processing workflow where you're taking payments from people. You probably wouldn't want to run that again if it failed after the point in which you took the payment. So this is a really cool feature because it allows you to restart your workflow execution from the point at which it failed. So you've got a 10-step workflow. It fails at point eight. You restart it from point eight, and eight, nine, and 10 will run independently of the first seven steps. Have I done the maths right there? Yeah, I think I have. Um, so yeah, really, really, really cool feature for step functions. That sounds cool, but feel free to do multiple charges and put them in my bank account. I mean, you know, that'd be... <laughs> yeah, the opposite way around. <laughs> that'd be nice. Oh no, my step function failed. I don't think customers would would appreciate that that feedback so much. Probably not. No. Um, and then there's a couple of other things with step functions. So there's a, there was a couple of new announcements around the different things you can call from step functions. So historically, mm-hmm. like way, way back, more than two years ago now, I think, there was a finite set of things you could do within a step, within a step function. So invoke a Lambda mm-hmm. function, um, write a record to DynamoDB, publish an event to EventBridge. And then I think it was two years ago now, they released the SDK integrations, which opened up almost every single AWS SDK call from directly from step functions. Um, and that gives you then what you've got, what you've got, you've called what are called optimized integrations, which are the first set. And then you've got mm-hmm. the SDK integrations, which is like everything else. Um, and that was really powerful because it gives you like almost every single AWS API that you can call directly from a workflow. It reduced a whole bunch of Lambda functions, just, just got rid of them completely. Um, nice. So at reInvent, there was the Bedrock. So for anyone who's not familiar with Amazon Bedrock, this is the AWS offering in the ever-growing generative AI space that allows, gives you access via a single API to multiple different foundational models, so multiple different Gen AI models. Um, and the Stephens team have released an optimized, sorry, go on, go on top. <laughs> I was going to say, it's basically serverless Gen AI. Absolutely, uh, yeah, yes. Pay, pay-per-use, you make a call, mm-hmm. standard API call that have different parameters that you pass into it based on the model that you're calling, and you get a standard-ish response back. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Serverless Gen AI, I like that. Um, but the, the so the two integrations that that Step Functions release is is in the optimized integrations camp. So that's for invoking a model. So actually, mm-hmm. you know, making a generative AI call and getting a response back, and then also creating a model customization job. And what that means is that these foundational models are, as described, they're foundational, and you can fine tune these models to meet a specific use case that you might have maybe with some custom training data for example so these are now optimized integrations with step functions and it just makes the way of building simpler you don't need to know if you're using the sdk integrations you need to know the actual aws sdk you need to know the parameters for the aws sdk you need to know the the format of the call optimized integrations just simplify a lot of that so that was one of the one of the announcements and there was also the um https endpoint support which now means directly from your step function you can now call any HTTPS endpoint that exists. Um, and obviously that opens up a whole load of different use cases for, you know, calling GitHub, Stripe for handling payments. Like there's a whole bunch of different use cases that that, mm. that fits that you can now do directly from your workflow as opposed to 
needing to have your workflow invoke a Lambda function and that Lambda function simply just makes an API call and then does nothing else. So yeah, two really cool announcements there from like an integration perspective and a service capability perspective. That's really cool. I, I, mean, I can remember when Step Functions first came out and it was like, you can do this or you can do this and that's it. Uh, but now it's a really, really powerful tool set. So yeah, there's like there's just so many things you can do with it. You can build entire APIs. You know, the, the, the use case I always come to is you've got a simple CRUD API that's storing data in DynamoDB. You can build all of that without a single line of code, like as in a line of code running in production. You know, Lambda functions, yeah. nothing. API gateway direct to to Step functions, direct to Dynamo. There's just so much you can do now. And when you think about, as I said at the start, you know, serverless being a reduction in operational overhead. Like serverless is a spectrum, isn't it? It's not, it's not you are serverless or you aren't, you are more or less serverless. And if you, and, and the way I think about it is how much operational responsibility can you reduce? And anything like that, where that API I've just described, AWS has almost all of your operational responsibility, if not all of your operational responsibility, because you're not managing code, you're not operating code, you're not deploying changes to your code. It's just step functions does all this for you. So it's a super powerful service. And then the last, the last, the last one, at least on the step functions side of the world, the last feature I wanted to call out, because it's another really cool one, um, is task state testing. And what that means is you can invoke an individual step of a workflow, passing in some mm -hmm custom input to that single step and you will get some output back. So it allows you to test an individual step of your workflow. Previously, you would have had to invoke your entire workflow. There was a customer I worked for and we had a workflow that deployed a Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, not deploying Kubernetes with the serverless. It was kind of wild. Um, and it was like <laughs> a 25-step workflow. And if you wanted to add a 26th step and you wanted to test the 26th step, you would have to run all 25 steps prior to get to the 26th step to then test it. And then it fails and then you're like, oh, it took 15 minutes to deploy that cluster. I've got to go again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this is, this is just this is really cool. As you're building and developing workflows, you know, you can invoke a single step. Okay, that's cool. That works. And it allows you just to iterate a lot quicker um, mm -hmm. to test different scenarios, different cases of how that the input to that single step might, might work. That sounds really cool. Yeah, and it, I mean, it also helps with things like authentication. You know, one of the common issues, anyone who's working with AWS for any amount of time, it is, is IAM. Like IAM is, is, can be complex. It can make things fail in weird and wonderful ways. Um, that would also <laughs> test IAM. If you've got a step of your workflow that is calling a Lambda function and you mm -hmm. haven't set IAM up right, you could run this test state in your workflow and it would work because you get the IAM authentication and you don't need to go through this whole process of, waiting for the entire workflow to run again it's all about speeding up this development feedback loop that 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 is so useful as we all know as developers nice well i say i just run everything as admin so i don't have that problem <laughs> administrator access no, I, star. <laughs> no please, i don't do that uh, yes. <laughs> yeah fine grained access control please everybody <laughs> um so yeah that um that that kind of rounds out my favorite AWS service, Step Functions. And the, obviously, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch more than what I'm going to talk about, even in the serverless world. Like this, these are just the picks of the bunch, if you will, of, of the things that I've seen. James's top 10 or top yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah something <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, so that let's move on to Lambda, the kind of... The, the OG of the serverless world, if you will. Actually, I know it's kind of SQS and S3 are probably the OGs of the serverless world, but serverless compute world, we'll, we'll, we'll call it. We'll yeah. Go to Lambda. Because um, there's a whole bunch of, of, of new things that, that came to Lambda. And actually, one of the one of the coolest, I think, from a technology perspective, and this may not be applicable to a, to a large number of customers, is the scaling behavior. Of Lambda. Mm -hmm. So Lambda now scales 12 times faster. So what that means is prior to this announcement, mm -hmm. Lambda functions could scale by between 500 and 3,000 concurrent executions, depending on the region, in the first minute. So you get a whole bunch of load into your Lambda function. And in the first limit, in the first minute, in the first limit, gosh, I'm speaking backwards now in the first minute you could only scale up between 500 and 3000 concurrent executions and any more than that would then start to be throttled 
And then after that, after that first minute, you then get an additional 500 execution environments per minute until your total account concurrency is reached. So to break some of that down a little bit, just in case anyone listening isn't familiar with Lambda, um, concurrent executions, what that means is that every time a request comes into Lambda, each of them requests is handled in a completely unique execution environment. It's completely isolated. So one request comes in, you get one execution environment. Two requests come in at the exact same time, you're likely to get two execution environments. So what this means is that between 500 and 3,000 concurrent executions means that you've got this many concurrent execution environments. You can process that many concurrent requests at the same time. This, of course, differs to the more traditional computing model where you've got one server and all of your 3,000 requests are handled by the same execution environment, which is your server. Very different model. So that was prior to the update. That's how things used to be. Now, as of reInvent, that now, Lambda now allows you to have a thousand concurrent execution environments every 10 seconds until a point you reach your account concurrency limit. So that means you can add an additional thousand environments every 10 seconds, which previously to this was about, you know, between 500 and 3000 every minute. You think about that. And when I say this is like a technology thing, if you just think about the engineering behind that, <laughs> you think yeah. a thousand concurrent executions every 10 seconds. That's it's just, it's, it, it's, it's crazy. So yeah, what that means is that if you get a burst of requests into your function, say you get 999 requests into your Lambda function in, in a 10 second period, Lambda will scale up to handle that in the next 10 second period, you get, you can keep that same a thousand you can, add, you can add a thousand additional execution environments every 10 seconds, sorry, should I say. Um, so your first first 10 seconds, you get 999 requests, happy days. Second 10 seconds, you get another 999 happy days. Your third 10 seconds, you receive 1,500 requests. 500 of them will, of course, be throttled because you can't add more than a thousand every 10 seconds. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just a really, and, and what I say, this might not be applicable to to all people listening is because that's obviously, a, that's a scale thing. That's, that's you know, if you're, if you're operating at scale with a high number of, yeah. request through but but it's just a really cool thing to think about <laughs> i just i love yeah. just sitting sometimes i sit at night and i'm just like the, the, the engineering behind that is just it's just crazy it's just it's just insane so other lambda things sticking with lambda mm -hmm. um so sticking with the scaling thing so lambda will now scale up five times faster when you're using sqs as an event source so the way nice. Lambda and SQS integrations work is that there is a set of pollers. So, the, so the, the, the way the integration works is that Lambda is simply polling the SQS queue on your behalf. So if you were to write code mm -hmm. to interact with SQS without Lambda, you would just write, you know, you would make a request to receive message. You'd have some kind of for each loop. And then afterwards you would delete the messages from the queue or not, depending on if they failed, they're not failed to be processed. So what Lambda's doing for you is just taking that away. So you just get the set of records into your Lambda function. And that works using a, a fleet of pollers. So there's a fleet of pollers that are polling SQS on your behalf. And the number of pollers will be roughly equivalent. And I can't remember exactly what the, the, the maths is, but it will be roughly equivalent to the number of messages you've got in the queue. So if you've got a sudden influx of a thousand messages into your SQS queue, Mm -hmm. the speed at which the pollers can scale up will directly impact how quickly your functions start to receive these messages off the queue. So these pollers now scale up five times faster. So if you get a sudden burst of load into your queues, you roughly will be able to work through that backlog five times faster because your pollers are going to scale up five times faster. Nice. Nice little uh, boost in integration there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the other really cool thing about all of this is all these things are for free. It's one of the beauties of serverless. Like this scale up happens, you can process your queue faster. There's no additional cost to you as a customer and there's no additional engineering effort. It just happens. And suddenly everything produces, everything processes faster. Um, quick sidebar, but there was a really cool... Um, Luke Van Donk is good, who's an AWS serverless hero. Um, he won Werner's Let's Go Build Award this year at reInvent. He works for PostNL, the Dutch postal service, and he they do a lot of things with EventBridge. And earlier this year, EventBridge released a new something new in the back end that massively increased decreased the process be like the end-to-end -end latency of EventBridge. And I did distinctly remember him putting a, a screenshot of a graph from one of his observer from Honeycomb, one of the observer observability tools on on Twitter. 
and the, the graph's like this, and then suddenly I'm doing this on a podcast, so this is useless me using my hands, isn't it? Um, the graph's really high, and then all of a sudden it like drops off a cliff. <laughs> it's like no load, and then the, suddenly the processing speed just like through the floor. So it's just all these things just happen for free. It's one of the things I just love about serverless is that you just get these sudden free upgrades to how fast things work or how fast things scale. It's just it's just wonderful. Oh, it's great when you get something and you don't have to actually do the work for it. Yeah, yeah, just literally no work, no effort, and suddenly things are faster. Like amazing. Um, and then the last, the last lambda-based thing I wanted to touch on quickly was the logging control. So the new logging controls that were released. Um, so historically with lambda if you were to write a log line from your code, you know, we've all been there, we're trying to work out an issue. So you've got console write line one, console write line two, console write line three. Ah, I got one and two in my log and I didn't get three. Ah, that's where the issue is. Don't please do that in production. Guilty. <laughs> Don't rely on that as your observability strategy. But we've all been there. You know, you write console write lines, you print yeah. log statements. Like everybody really should be using structured logging. Like if you really are operating scale, you're building something in production, structured logging is the way to go. And what I mean by structured logging is all of your logs across your entire system have the same structure. Structure to them that makes them queryable, which means you can then actually, you know, give me all logs that have got X, Y, Z related to them. You can actually query your log messages. Um, and if you were doing that previously, you would have to use some kind of structured logging framework in your application code. And most languages have got this, you know, some library like .NET, you've got Serilog, um, <laughs> Java, you've got uh, Log4J, things like that. So the logging controls for Lambda now allow you to turn this on at a Lambda level. So you can turn on native JSON logging in Lambda. And what that means is that if you have, you're writing log messages in your code and you're just using console write line, print, whatever, console log for you JavaScript enthusiasts out there, (laughs) um, you will actually get JSON formatted logs out of Lambda because Lambda will do that, that transformation, if you will, into something that's structured. Um, So it's a really nice way to get structure in your logs without needing to adopt a potentially quite heavyweight framework that's then going to start to affect other pop components of Lambda. Um, that also includes native support for log levels. So you can say at an individual function level, I only want to see error logs, I only want to see info logs, I only want to see warning logs, debug logs, trace logs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can set that now at a function level so that you what hits CloudWatch is filtered before it hits CloudWatch, which is going to save you money in a lot of cases. And they're the three Lambda, the, the Lambda hits I had. Nice. Um, I, I got to say, I love this, the Lambda scaling. Uh, I, I saw that. I was like, wow, that's uh, really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's just, um, yeah, it's just crazy. And then, of course, with Lambda, you've got a whole bunch of new Lambda runtimes that are announced. So you've got Java 21, Node 20. <laughs> I forgot what the latest version of Node is. And there was a new Python version. And then, of course, there's, there's .NET 8 support coming um january so oh, we're in january now so um it, it, it's coming in january so by the time this point. podcast gets published you maybe maybe it will be maybe it won't i can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny mr morris so. <laughs> uh, it is coming well, I, though but you can do native aot with uh with dot net eight absolutely you and i have both worked on a, a fair bit and it was really yeah. exciting you could i mean if you really wanted to go really ahead of the curve you could even run dot net eight in a custom runtime you know there's there's options to run dotnet eight today of course um mm-hmm. it's just the managed runtime support for dotnet eight is coming in january so that's lambda um and then the last one i wanted to touch on last service i wanted to touch on at least was um eventbridge because mm-hmm. there was a couple of things that came from eventbridge that are really cool so the first is um wildcard event filtering for eventbridge um so when you work with eventbridge again for anyone who's unfamiliar you eventbridge is an event bus but one of the features of eventbridge is an event bus Um, you publish events into the event bus and then you define rules on the consumer side to define which events you want to pull off the bus and then you can send them events to different targets and when you define these rules, there's a certain pattern syntax you can use. So you could do things like um, you could match on like a like a prefix. So does the does a property in the event start with Tom, or does it start with James, for example? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and let's imagine a scenario where you have files in an S3, if you have folders in an S3 bucket and you have a folder for Tom and you have a folder for James, we're two customers. Um, and in the, in subfolders inside them two top-level folders, you have our order data. So you've got slash Tom slash orders slash James slash orders. And you want to do some work whenever Tom or James uploads an order. Previously, you would have had to have two separate rules on your event bus. One saying, I want all the S3 events for slash Tom slash orders and one for slash James slash orders. What wildcard event filtering now allows you to do is, as described, is to use wildcards. So you could say, I want to define a rule that is star star slash orders on this S3 bucket. And you would then get both events for Tom and for James. Um, and then obviously in your application code, you might then filter for Tom and James as part of a step function or a Lambda function or whatever. And I actually missed this completely. So I only noticed this. I, only, I was looking through the, some of the recent announcements um, earlier today and I actually only come across it. I was like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that had happened. Um, so this has been a really useful exercise for me recording this podcast, Tom, because I've covered things I missed. Um, and that's obviously really useful because it just, one of the service limits with an event bridge is the number of rules you can define on a given bus. So anything yeah. that allows you to minimize the number of rules allows you to define, it stops you hitting them limits as quickly that you might get against against the actual service itself. And I think every programmer in the world has written a lot of things that's like 90% of the same code, just change this one little bit and mm -hmm. uh, carry on. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good time saving. Absolutely, definitely. And then the other EventBridge-based one was around EventBridge pipes. So like I said, EventBridge, when you think about EventBridge, most people think of event mm -hmm. buses, event bridge, event buses. That was kind of the original feature of EventBridge. But EventBridge has got much more to it than event buses. There's the scheduler, which allows you to schedule events, schedule things to happen across time zones. You've got EventBridge pipes, which is quickly becoming my favorite AWS service. Like it's quickly catching step functions up. And that's what I want to talk about, EventBridge pipes. So one of my sessions at reInvent actually was on EventBridge pipes, um, a workshop actually, which will be going public at some point. Maybe I'll be able to give you a link for the show notes before this goes live, depending on when this goes live. And we can put a link for this EventBridge pipes workshop in there. Um, and what pipes allows you to do is to create point-to-point -point integrations. So when you think about enterprise integration, if we throw back to Gregor's seminal book on the topic, you've got publish subscribe, which is event buses. You've got producer and you've got many consumers typically. Um, and then you've got point to point, which is I want to move a message from here to here, point to point A to B. Um, and that's what EventBridge Pipes is trying to, EventBridge Pipes is trying to solve for that the same way EventBridge buses did for publish subscribe. So Pipes mm -hmm. allows you to create these point to point integrations in a completely serverless way. So my yep. favorite, favorite, favorite example for this use case is SQS to step functions. If you wanted to invoke a step function from a message on an SQS queue previously to before pipes, mm -hmm. you'd need a Lambda function to do that. And all that Lambda function is going to do is take data from one place, send it to the, and, and invoke your work, execute your step function, which is kind of, it's, it's code you don't need. It's just, it's just, it's just glue yeah. code that doesn't really do a lot. <laughs> so... Pipes takes a lot of that away. You can set pipes up with an SQS queue as a source, with a step mm -hmm. function as a target, and pipes will do all of that for you. It'll take the message off the queues and send it to the step function and execute your step function. And along the way, you can do filtering. So you can apply filters using the same syntax you use to define EventBridge rules. So you could, you know, you can filter your messages. And then you can also enrich your messages. So as part of this flow, you could make a call out to a HTTP API or a Lambda function. So the example there I always like to think of is you've got a customer ID field in your mm -hmm. message data. You want to get more contextual information about the customer before you pass it on to the, the final consumer at the final target. Mm -hmm. You can enrich that, reach out, grab your customer information, and then pass it on. So it's a really cool way of building these point-to-point -point integrations. Um, it also respects ordering. So if you've got SQS, FIFO, first in, first out. Nice. And you've got order. You've got an ordered source and an ordered target. S pipes will respect the ordering, and also you don't pay for pipes until an event goes past the filter. So if you have a hundred messages come off your SQS queue, ninety nine of them get filtered out by the filter that you define. You only pay for one message, and the rest will just be dropped. And they will just be dropped. They won't go back on the queue. They will just disappear. So it's it's, it's a really, really it's such a powerful service. It's, it's it's I'm kind of using this now as a bit of a plug for pipes because it's such a powerful service. The customers I know who are using it love it, 
but people just it, there's a I think a lot of people I speak to just don't know it's there. They just think event bridge, event buses. They don't look at these other features. Coming, I certainly have never heard of it. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so coming back to my actual announcement that I wanted to talk about though <laughs> is um, logging logging support for pipes. So one of the challenges with pipes previously is that it was a little bit black box in that mm-hmm. if your your message failed to get to the target for whatever reason, you got a metric saying there was a fail a failure but there was no way to actually work out what happened. And if you were using like an ordered like SQS 5.4, that message that failed would actually block up the pipe. The analogy actually works here. That would like be, you know, throwing something into like a rock in the pipe that blocks it up. And you can configure dead letter queues. So you could route that off to a dead letter queue and then everything will just carry on. But there was no way to actually know what caused the issue until reInvent where logging support was announced. So you can now log Right, log messages out to CloudWatch, um, I think S3 as well, mm-hmm. and I think even Kinesis, I'd have to go and check the docs. Um, and then you can actually get this list of log messages in terms, okay, so now I actually know what is happening in my pipe. Uh, what is not happening, <laughs> as the case probably well, is that <laughs> some things are going wrong. So then you've got that relationship where, okay, you've got messages coming through your pipe, there's a problem, you route it off to your dead letter queue, you could have retries in there, you retry three times, okay, it's fair, we send it off to the dead letter queue, Go and look at your logs, look at your log messages, and they, you know, you've got the details there on why that actually failed. So it's not a particularly, you know, it's not as exciting maybe as a thousand concurrent execution environments every 10 seconds. What? <laughs> I'm going to rephrase that again for everybody listening. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's a really, really useful feature once you actually get to the kind of day two stuff where you've got an application deployed and you need to work out why the heck it's broken because everything fails all the time, as we all know. I, well, I think if you're the person that is trying to figure out what went wrong, you'd probably find that is very exciting. Actually. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yay, <laughs> logging. Very true. <laughs> very, very true. Um, I, I actually once worked on some code uh, on, if you remember Palm Pilots when they were a thing, uh-huh. I worked on some code that couldn't log anything and it ran in the background. So the only thing I could do was uh, my observability was the palm pilot making little ticks. So it'd be like, tick, 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 tick. <laughs> Is that like the way so the console yes, route, like right? one, two, three, was the number of ticks that you had? <laughs> exactly, yes. Oh, man. So, that sounds, uh, man, yeah. Fun. I think um, I think sometimes, you know, I've been working in tech for probably 10 years now. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think I've got a deep enough appreciation for how things were... 40 years ago, for example, you know, where like, you know, since I've started working, you've had like log files and windows and nice OSs and all this stuff. And I just don't, I think I need to go back at some point and try and write some COBOL code or something and, you know, try and really work out, you know, why is serverless so amazing when you've got all this other stuff that you don't have to think about? Maybe that's going to be a, an exercise at some point I need to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I actually wrote once, my first Windows program, I had to write the event pump. Uh, for mm-hmm. Windows, so yeah, very cool, very very cool. No, it wasn't. <laughs> okay, okay, you said you said it, not me. Um, on the subject of observability, actually, one of the last um, one of the last announcements that I had um, that kind of is serverless, but kind of isn't, um, is the CloudWatch alarms. So if you've configured an alarm in mm-hmm. CloudWatch, you can now target a Lambda function directly. So one of the things I've built previously in, in, in another pre-AWS life is um, I work for a consulting company. We have you know, 10, 15 customers, all with vaguely similar systems. So we wanted some kind of centralized observability. So all these different systems deployed in all these different customers' data centers, all reported data back to a centralized mothership, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And we had alarms going off. You know, okay, customer X has got a problem with process Y. And to actually trigger some custom functionality, in our case, it was sending a message to Slack, to a Slack channel, you needed to go CloudWatch to SNS to Lambda. Like the only, one of the mm-hmm. only targets for CloudWatch alarms was SNS. So you could now invoke Lambda directly from a CloudWatch alarm, switching state from you know, happy to unhappy. Um, again, it's another really useful thing that allows you just to... I, I always, I don't know if you ever found, found this, Tom, but I always really like things that I can do when I get to delete stuff. Whether it's yes. 
changing some code. Oh, I can delete that entire method. I can delete all that, that class or I can delete that entire component of my CDK code because I don't need that SNS topic anymore. Like anything like that, I just, I just find I get really satisfied by just getting rid of stuff. It's just fun. <laughs> One last thing that can go wrong. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, yeah. I mean, my code's perfect every time, but you know, not everybody is. <laughs> it's never the code. It's never my code. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> now, anybody that knows me and has seen my code knows that's absolutely not the case. But uh... likewise, seems like we're cut from the same cloth, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so, so that's that, that was, uh... in terms of the list of um, features that I'd or announcements that I pulled together. They were the kind of. The, the, the high level ones that I, I realize I'm probably going to get a whole bunch of product managers now harassing me because you didn't talk about X or Y, but <laughs> they were the ones of the big list of reinvest. You know, I mean, you know how it is, Tom, you've worked at AWS, the, the list of reinvent announcements, even just in the serverless world, you know, Lambda, SNS, SQS, event bridge, step functions is, is as long as your arm. So apologies if there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've missed, but they were the ones that I thought were particularly relevant and exciting for, for people to be aware of. Well, any service owner that wants to come on the podcast and talk about their service <laughs> launches, absolutely welcome to. Uh, I will. I will have anybody on. I like what you've done. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. But, uh, actually, I think back to when I when I started in 2016 at, at AWS and the reinvent launches. Now, and it's like we get more than that in what's affectionately referred to as pre-invent, um, and then we have all the actual reinvent launches it's yeah. uh, it, it's insane yeah it's crazy um, it always massively ups my excitement for i think last year was a this year there was you know there was a lot of good stuff last year was particularly exciting and i think i judge my excitement on how excited i get by the pre-invent announcements because i think you know <laughs> if pre-invent is this good <laughs> if this just come out pre-reinvent what is coming at reinvent i think it's it's quite a good heuristic at least i use it in my own head than in you know <laughs> it's one of the cool things that you know you know about working at AWS. I mean, even working within the serverless space at AWS, there's still announcements that surprise you. Like it's impossible to know everything that's coming and you're like, what step functions does what now? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that was happening. Um so yeah it's it's super cool. And a lot of it's kept under wraps too. They don't yeah you know, it's very much a need to know basis. So. Yeah, absolutely. So serverless uh Serverless kind of tends to bleed into this idea of microservices or smaller compute deployments in, you know, however you want to, however much of a purist you are in the idea of microservices there. Uh, one of the arguments that comes up, and I actually was writing a blog post on this uh, for, for my employer in, in a couple months ago, is the idea of containers versus serverless. Uh, and Let's set aside the fact that you can actually do serverless containers uh, for the moment. Um, what's your what's your take on this? Where's a sort of balancing act, and and where does this argument kind of explode? I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, I used to very much be in the serverless purist approach, being that you know, container, no, never, <laughs> put it all in Lambda, um, but it's. And there is a lot of talk, like you say, it's like, are you doing containers or are you doing serverless? And I think, you know, I know you said, you know, put aside the fact that you can do serverless containers, but I think that's really important. Um, if you come back to that, this, this idea that serverless isn't, you aren't doing serverless or not doing serverless. You are simply more or less, serverless. I like to refer to it as thinking serverless. Like, okay, my default is Lambda. I want to be as serverless as possible. I want as little operational overhead as possible. but mm -hmm. I can step out to other scenarios if and when I need to. There might be a specific use case. I know of a use case, not a customer I've worked with, but I know of another customer, AWS customer, where they had a scenario where they had a data, data processing job of some kind, mm -hmm. and 80% of the files they needed to process with the job completed in under five minutes or two minutes. I can't remember what it was, but it was a, you know, a finite number of minutes, single-digit number of minutes. The other 20% took about two hours. Okay, so what do you do in that situation? Do you go, okay, well, I'm only going to use Lambda, and then what do you do with the ones that run over two hours? Because Lambda can only run for a max of 15 minutes, 
idea you go the other way and run everything in containers and then you've got these long running containers that are only really relevant for the things that are going to you know for the going to take under five minutes that's the perfect use case for lambda so you end up kind of stuck in this middle ground if you have this view on the world that i need to be serverless or i need to be containers that specific customer ended up using both so they had a they had a step function that was smart enough to know okay a file that has this criteria maybe it's let's simplify it and say it's the number of rows in the csv file mm-hmm. for argument's sake okay, if I've got less than 100 rows, I can send it to Lambda. And if I've got more than 100 rows, I can send it to containers. And you can use that to use both. And if you've written your application code in the right way, you can actually run the same code on Lambda and the same code in a container. Like it, mm. I, I, I think, I think very, very, my, my view is that the, the, the decision is kind of taken away from what the actual conversation should be, which is about reducing operational overhead. How, how how can you reduce your operational overhead as much as possible that allows you to focus on your application code? And if that happens to be you package your application up as a container image and run it on AppRunner, or you run it on Lambda. There was a really interesting blog post I read yesterday or the day before by a, by a serverless hero talking about, he did a really deep analysis on running containers on Lambda because of course you can run containers Yes. On Lambda, it's one of the packaging formats. And actually, with a in certain use cases, with the right application makeup, containers are more performant than zip files, even though they're bigger, because typically you've got the OS packaged in there as well. They're, they're, they're more performant. So actually, it's 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 the wrong conversation to have, in my opinion. I think there's a there's there's, there's an argument of both. Now, one caveat I will put into that is that when I talk about serverless containers, what I mean is things like ECS, Fargate, or AppRunner. What I don't mean is Kubernetes. And I'm not going to say Kubernetes is rubbish. I'm not, no, Kubernetes is, is great for a certain use case. Kubernetes has a whole bunch of operational responsibility. There's a whole bunch of things you've got to think about. You've got, even just to deploy a cluster, there's a whole bunch of core services you need to even make that that cluster functional and you need to manage that stuff even if you're using fargate with kubernetes there is still more operational overhead than something like ecs um and that's 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 the way i like to think about it the question i've started asking myself recently is you know is the ability of the customer or your your company you know talking to the audience now is your ability to manage and operate infrastructure a core differentiator of your business if if it is, right. Kubernetes, fantastic. Because the, the behaviors you can get with the way you can scale up, scale down, you can add GPU instances, you can take them off. Things like Carpenter allow you to be really smart with how you position pods and, and compute on your infrastructure that you have. But if that isn't going to be a core differentiator for your business, and that's probably you know the vast majority of, of people listening, the operational responsibility of something like Lambda or AppRunner or ECS Fargate, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is lower than what you will take on with Kubernetes. AWS is your platform in the same way that Kubernetes might be your platform if you're building with Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. So that it's about it's about picking the right tool for you know it's the it's the age old it depends that, that we all know and love in architecture. Pick the right tool for the right job. Start as serverless as possible, and then. If you have the right use case, step out to something like containers. Okay, you really need something complex, really complex microservices with really specific infrastructure requirements and inter-service communication and service meshes and all this stuff that Kubernetes is fantastic at. Then you maybe step out to Kubernetes, but don't make it something that everybody has to use for every single use case because it's not going to fit every single use case. I'd be interested to get what your thoughts are on that same topic though. Well, I, I, I'm always, I always try to lean towards, uh, and, and if you, if you were to ask me, um, as far as running containers, I always start with, uh, you know, if you're talking about Kubernetes, do you know how to use Kubernetes? Mm-hmm. If you do, and you already use Kubernetes, then it's a great idea to continue to use that rather than, um, necessarily adopting something. Now, I, I love Lambda, and I think that you know everything that is a good fit for Lambda. Uh, I I love the idea of pushing it over there. Um, but that said, if you don't already know how to use Lambda uh, Kubernetes, 
then maybe opt for something like ECS. Uh, because it does have, it is simpler. It's the easy button for. Oh, um, I want to know if the podcast can hear that, but my AI is going off telling me to get on the podcast, which is a, a bit odd. I can hear it. So I don't know if you're just doing for, we go for 45 minutes. So, uh, yeah, anyway. When do you want to? Do you, I, I can, I can, I can bring it back whenever you want to bring it. When we can edit stuff out, but I can, I can continue. No, that's, that's fine. Uh, if anybody is listening to this podcast, yes, I actually have an Alexa in my office, uh, and it does go off and give me annoying uh, <laughs> reminders when I miss setting time. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, but I think, I think yeah. just to round out the whole argument, you can make the same argument the opposite way. Like, if you already understand Kubernetes don't try and adopt lambda for the sake of adopting lambda like you know the, i think it's, it's i think a lot of it no i love lambda so everybody should adopt it <laughs> <laughs> i would say the same in a lot oh. of cases i'm trying to be balanced tom i'm trying to be balanced but okay i won't be balanced yes everybody should use lambda for everything <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Uh, but okay. it's, it's interesting also, what, what, like, the last youtube video i released on my youtube channel before christmas was about how you can run any web application on lambda Providing it's stateless and it can it, it can run on Linux, and you can start it up by running an executable, and that executable might be a batch file that starts up like an ExpressJS process. It might be a .NET binary, it might be a Rust binary, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. There's a project called the Lambda Web Adapter project, which kind of it's a little it's a Lambda layer and it's a little Rust application, and it acts like a proxy in front of your Lambda function. So when your Lambda when your Lambda function starts up your .NET web application starts up and your web application is running on localhost 8080, for example. And Lambda Web Adapter will pull the Lambda runtime, take the request from the Lambda runtime and make the HTTP request to your web application that's now running on localhost. And this means you can now run any web application on Lambda, Angular, Re React, you know, ASP.NET, Spring Boot, Rust, Express, Flask, like all these different things you're now... You can now pick them up and run on Lambda. You can also do this with containers. So when, now you're getting into a place where you could literally take the exact same container image and run it on Lambda and run it on ECS Fargate. And there's something, there's a proof of concept that I'm meaning to do forever now, which is to have an application load balancer pointing to both Lambda and ECS, the same application. And as you get a sudden mm. spike in traffic, shift more traffic to Lambda than to ECS because Lambda will deal with the spike in traffic better than ECS will because a container will, the, the cold start of a container is slower than the cold start of a Lambda execution environment. And, and I think that you get, and this is, again, you get into this with this real blurry line where it's like, if you said, I'm only using containers, I'm only using ECS Fargate. Well, yeah, but you might have use cases where Lambda's better. You've got an internal HR application that's accessed three times a month. Still package it as a container. You can use all your container image tooling. Fine, do that. Push it to ECR. Fine, do that. But deploy it to Lambda. Uh, I think. I think. I think it just drives the wrong conversation. The serverless or container is, is is it kind of drives the wrong conversation. It kind of talks around something that is is not the real challenge that you're dealing with. It's it's an operational responsibility challenge. If we think about it, the whole point of containers was to deliver us one thing that could be run anywhere. Uh, you know, it's like, here's your code. Now pick the execution environment that makes sense and be able to shift between them. So Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, not not to, I said not to shamelessly plug my YouTube channel. I'm now shamelessly plugging my YouTube channel. <laughs> you can do that. You can, you can, you know, you can make these things work together really well. So there's an example I've got, I think it was about two or three months ago now, where you've got step functions orchestrating ECS. So if you have a... .NET console application or any kind of application that starts up, does some work, and then exits after it's finished doing the work. So if you run that application in a container, your container is going to start up, your code's going to run, and then your container is going to shut down because the process shuts down. So what you can then do is you can have a message on something like an SQSQ. You can use a step function to pull the message off, the, well, pipes to pull the message off the queue. You invoke a step function. And your step function can then invoke an ECS task. You can actually start a task on Amazon ECS using an API called this is the run task API. 
you could do that and you could pass in a custom environment variable. For example, this is exactly what I did in the YouTube video. So you pass in as an environment variable the message contents that came from SQS and your container image starts up. It reads the environment variable, passes that as an SQS message, does the work, shuts down again. Now, that's not going to be anywhere near as efficient as doing the same thing on Lambda. But if you're stuck with the same conversation of serverless or containers, you will probably never even look at step functions because you're only using containers. You're not using serverless technologies. And if it happens to take more than 15 minutes, then, you know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it just it runs matter. and runs and runs and then eventually shuts down. So, yeah, I think and then, and then you know, you, you throw all the whole microservices and I think microservices are uh, there's a whole module on this in my course. Um, shameless plug again. Sorry, everybody. Um, there's you know there's a whole there's a whole module on this whole conversation. This serverless or containers conversation and, and microservices is something completely different because you can build microservices with serverless. You can build microservices with the containers. Microservices is an architectural pattern. Serverless containers are a way of running the code that your microservices define. That's kind of not really worded very right, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, they're just, they're, again, there's different oh, things. Yeah. Are you doing serverless or are you doing microservices? Well, I'm doing serverless microservices, Thomas. <laughs> cool. Well, so in that discussion, you you brought up something that I think five years ago would have been an absolute, like people would be pulling out the pitchforks and everything, but the idea of running an application, like a monolithic application inside of Lambda. You know, that was like, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> you're going to be, um, yes, uh, you're thrown to, the, thrown to the crocodiles here. Um, but it sounds like that's something that maybe is becoming more acceptable. And this is absolutely something I've softened my thinking on massively, even in the last, like, six months, let alone year. Like, I, used, I, I was absolutely militant about the fact you know you're building an api on lambda you've got five endpoints that's five separate lambda functions it must be five separate lambda functions but actually so there's a there's a customer i've worked with um they've talked about this at reinvent i think it's on youtube now um i can give you a link and put it in the short description um i'm not sure if it is on youtube yet so i'm not going to mention the customer by name just in case um but yeah. the they started off building in this way it's a dotnet customer they built it in this way where they had a separate Lambda function per API endpoint. And they shifted that. And they ended up with, you know, tens, hundreds, if not, of Lambda functions servicing all their APIs. And what they actually did is they took all these Lambda functions and they condensed them down into six or seven ASP.NET web applications, entire web applications. And what they found is that it got easier to manage. Your developer experience is better because you can just spin it up mm -hmm. on you know, localhost. One of the common challenges I get when I talk to people with Lambda is that, okay, how do I run it locally? How do I debug it locally? Especially for us .NET and even Java developers who are used to just you know running your debugger locally and off you go, Five. stepping through the code. Exactly, <laughs> great points, all that good stuff. So you get that back if you're running like a web framework on Lambda, you can just run it locally. You get, but one of the, the more interesting things is that whenever you suggest this, to people, whenever I've said this to people, cold starts is always what people come back to. And for anyone not familiar with a cold start who's listening, when I talked about these execution environments earlier, an execution mm -hmm. environment is only created when a request comes in. And when that happens, Lambda needs to download your application code. It needs to you know, spin up the environment. It needs to bootstrap the runtime. It needs to do all this stuff. And that's a cold start. It's the period of time before a request actually gets processed. And what you'll typically find is that although your cold starts get slower, and they'll get slower because you need to start up your web framework. You need to start up ASP.NET. You need to start up Express. Mm -hmm. You need to start up Spring Boot, whatever it might be. Although your code starts will get slower, they will get less frequent. You will see a lot fewer code starts. And that's because if you've got five endpoints on your API, when a request comes to one of your endpoints and that's processed, well, you've now got a warm execution environment available. And if a request now comes into another endpoint on that same API, it's going to hit that execution environment that's already available. In the single Lambda function per endpoint world, you would get, if you hit five, or five endpoints were hitting one after the other, you would get five separate cold starts. In the full web framework, you get one cold start. So although they're slower, you will typically get less of them. And when you couple that in with developer experience, the ability to, to run it locally if you need to. I think it actually becomes 
not necessarily a do this or do that. It's definitely not as simple as that, but it's definitely a something to try and benchmark it against your actual application use case. So my default now, if I was to work, if I was to, to leave AWS and work at a startup now and build with Lambda, this is exactly where I would start building my web API. I would build it with a web framework and I would run it on Lambda. And I would run something like what I expected my real world load to be against the application mm -hmm. because that's where you get the interesting stuff. If I just deploy my Lambda function, I go into the console, I hit test and I see a one and a half second code start and I go, ah, oh, that's too slow. I can't do this. I'm going to go and run this on Kubernetes, whatever. That's not really a good test because that's just a one-off invoke and that's nothing like what you're going to see in the real world. So the first thing is whatever you're going to do with Lambda, run it with something like a real world load that's the kind of the first case and what you will typically find in a lot of use cases is that if you are running an entire web framework on lambda you will see slower code starts but you will see less of them and it just gets really really interesting and really nuanced when you actually start to look at it and i think when you know you said you know when you when you post the question about monolithic applications i think it's maybe not quite as simple as like an entire 100 endpoint API monolith in Lambda. There's a really good, another really good talk at reInvent actually from, from Julian Wood and Chris Munns talking about Lambda mm -hmm. and, and ways of structuring Lambda functions. And Julian actually, I think it's Julian who talks about this. It might be Chris. One of the two of them talks about this. And you imagine you've got an, uh, a system and you've got an orders API, you've got a user's API, and you've got a, I don't know, shipping API. A monolithic application would have all three of them things in one Lambda function, right? But mm -hmm. actually, you probably want to do a user's Lambda function, an order's Lambda function, and a shipping Lambda function. So, they, you know, there would still be an element of decomposition. I'm not talking about running an entire big million line of code monolith in Lambda. But this idea of running a web framework within Lambda is something that I think is becoming more and more reasonable of a thing to do. Very interesting. And I can't believe I'm well, saying this to you because, like I said, six months ago, I'd have been like, what? What is James talking about? He's just... talking absolute rubbish. But I've seen a number of customer use cases now where, and I, you know, I've, I've done this myself, I've run the benchmarks myself. And if you look at some of the numbers we have on the .NET benchmarking repository on GitHub, <clears throat> yes, at Cold Start, ASP.NET on Lambda is slower than just .NET managed runtime single-purpose handlers. But the number of Cold Starts that you see is... Typically, I'm actually going to try and get the numbers up right now if my laptop will work. Because um, it was, you know, the number of the number of code starts you actually see is considerably, considerably lower. Something like not point for a single purpose handler, it's about not point four percent of requests are code starts, and for ASP.NET, I think it's about not point two percent. Yeah, so here we go. .NET eight on Lambda. Um, this is native AOT. .NET eight on Lambda, running. Native AOT on Lambda, single purpose handlers. Um, there's about 300, 360 cold starts and about 76,000 warm starts. Okay, so that's kind of the ratio between cold and warm for single purpose handlers. For ASP.NET on Lambda, so this kind of idea of running an entire web application on Lambda, you've got 91 cold starts and you know, 79,000 or so warm starts. So yeah, it's what, what's that? 25, 75% lower, something like that, roughly? Yeah. Code starts. My math is not that good on... Uh, yeah, uh, uh, no, I'm not either. It was my worst part of maths was mental maths, <laughs> but, you know, I've got a friend who's really good at it, but I am not. Um, and then the warm start numbers are, are pretty compatible. So actually, I think, uh, and you know, it, gets, it gets... And then when you throw things like, you know, with .NET 8, uh, Microsoft now have limited support for native compiled ASP.NET applications. In the Java world, you've got Snap Start for Lambda, where you can you know you can pre-run some of this cold start phase, this initialization phase of your Spring Boot application, for example. So when you throw some of these things into the mix as well, it just gets it gets a lot more nuanced than I think just just do this or do that. Like right. I said, do it in a way that allows you to move quickly and benchmark it with some actual real-world load, and then make an informed decision from there. Sounds good. Now, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, go back and listen to uh, the podcast nine months ago with <laughs> James and Serverless Architecture and uh, compare and contrast. Yeah, that, yeah uh, I maybe, should have, actually, maybe I should have listened to that before this conversation, actually. <laughs> I was like, a right, hypocrite. <laughs> actually, I think 
from memory, your the, the podcast that we did before was my most listened to podcast. So, ah, well, we forgot that. Well, if we want to hear my northern British tones for, <laughs> for the best part of an hour, what a way to ruin your commute. Gosh, thank you, everybody. <laughs> Alrighty, James. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure as always. Uh, and hey, we're going to look forward to trying to get you up to that number five. Yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward to the t-shirt. Uh, a free shirt. I'll have to go and buy it. So. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much. And... We will see you on the podcast next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Basement Programmer Podcast. I really appreciate you tuning in. And if you have any feedback or comments, of course, send me an email. Also, please consider subscribing. It lets me know that you're enjoying this production. I'm looking forward to you joining me for the next episode of the Basement Programmer Podcast. In the meantime, take care, stay safe, and keep learning. Thanks for listening to this.